This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Larry Perel in for Charles Feldman. Well, some people said it was going to happen just in time for Monday Night Football. Disney and Charter reach a deal. We'll go in-depth with info on what this means for cable and streaming TV moving forward. Drew Barrymore feeling some heat from striking writers over a big decision she just made. Also, if you're a business owner and you want to keep your workers, don't promote them. Probably should not have said that out loud. That's... How did you trick me into doing that? This sounds weird, but we are going to explain what that means. Right. Well, we're going to try anyway. Uh, but we start uh, today's program with Disney and Charter reaching a deal, uh, bringing back Disney-owned networks to the cable TV giant. Brian Steinberg is the senior TV editor for Variety, who's been closely following this. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think this all comes down to a, a dwindling subscriber base for distributors and expanding streaming services for programmers. I mean, neither of them uh, wanting to leave any money on the table. So do we know who blinked first and why? Well, it seems like neither one, neither can live without the other. Charter needs to have Disney's sports networks. Disney needs to have Charter's subscriber base. So it seems that uh, they can't live without each other. They had to come up with some kind of, com- some kind of compromise. And it seems to be that Charter will drop some of Disney's TV networks in exchange for expanding the audience for some of Disney's streaming outlets. Streaming and, uh, you know, we were talking about how this is going to be a major change in what's going to happen with linear TV, right? Uh, but this deal kind of got resolved uh, faster than we knew. It, are the are the bells ringing? Never, never sent to know for whom the bells toll, they toll for thee. Are the bells ringing for cable TV still, even though they have made this deal? Yes, they are, because this charter's going to drop Freeform, FXX, FXM, some Nat Geo channels. You know, if I were Paramount, NBC Universal, Warner Brothers, I'd be nervous that my cable networks might get dropped in favor of my streaming hubs. So what's happening is kind of an uh, a narrowing down of the cable bundle because the companies that sell this stuff don't want to pay for everything on, on, on the dial. It can't, it's no longer affordable. All right. So where is the consumer in all this? Or, I mean, even though they're dropping some of these uh, channels, are costs going to go up or stay the same? That is all part of a complicated algebra that's in there somewhere. I suspect they're going to be paying more money for the streaming stuff, the extra bonuses, the ESPN of it all. Uh, you know, the consumer needs to count every penny and should kind of dig into their bill once this all goes goes forward. All right, so let me ask you this. Uh, this uh, continued wrestling match between distributors uh, like Charter and programmers like Disney, uh, just going to push consumers away regardless? I mean, many were saying that blocking these channels in the first place uh, was like uh, being held hostage. Uh, did it just uh, add more fuel to the fire for subscribers to cut the cord anyway? Well, consumers are going where it's, it's easiest to get their, their video when they want it, not when somebody else does. So I think convenience will win out. People want to get things easily and quickly and not worry about uh, the complexities of these companies negotiating their bills. Streaming, you can kind of subscribe as you want and drop out of it as you want. It might be the easier way to go. You know, speaking of 
streamers, you know, streaming, uh, the streaming world has its own problems because not only is cable and linear TV apparently circling the drain, uh, streamers are having some issues too. Uh, more, more streamers are, uh, they're losing money. They're figuring out what they're going to have to do. At some point, though, down the road, say five, ten years, uh, are we even going to have streamers per se anymore? Or are we going to have these aggregators who will aggregate the favorite TV shows that we like and we will pay for each show as we like them rather than jumping onto somebody's platform? I don't think the average American can afford to parcel out money for every piece of video they may want to watch. No one's going to want to do that. Micropayments or monthly subscriptions. I, I have a, a hard time seeing that happening. I do think we want uh, people do want their favorite shows and sports and a bundle of some sort, but I don't think that granular is going to work. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Brian Steinberg, senior TV editor for Variety, uh, closely following this deal that's been made between uh, uh, Spectrum and uh, Disney, getting Disney uh, channels back onto the TV. Some people directly impacted by the 9-11 attacks 22 years ago today are involved in a big lawsuit against Saudi Arabia. They say Saudi Arabia should be held accountable. This, of course, raises some questions about the U.S. relationship with the country over the past two decades. Jerry Firestein is with the Middle East Institute. He's a former U.S. ambassador to Yemen and former deputy assistant secretary of state for Near Eastern Affairs. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you today. Uh, thanks for being with us as well. Uh, you know, it appears the focus of these lawsuits uh, is uh, against the Saudi Arabian government. Focus on a by chance introduction at a cafe in Century City uh, between someone uh, who was investigated by the 9-11 Commission and the FBI as well, but not found to have a connection uh, to the attacks. We're talking about uh, 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 this gentleman named Omar al-Bayomi. How um, likely is this uh, to be reopened again? Well, as you said uh, quite correctly, this has been a subject of, of litigation for uh, for a number of years now. There was a uh, an FBI report that suggested that some uh, individuals associated with the government of Saudi Arabia were aware of and perhaps assisted uh, some of the uh, some of the hijackers, some of the individuals who were in the United States before the hijacking, uh, and uh, therefore. Uh, the, the government of Saudi Arabia uh, bore some responsibility for uh, what happened. Uh, obviously, this is uh, an issue that is before the courts, uh, and, uh, and we'll see how the litigation comes out. You know, there's been a feeling for a very long time that the U.S. did not go after Saudi Arabia very uh, very hard in the wake of 9-11, even given the connections that uh, that people saw that were there. Is it because that this, this country has us over a barrel? And I'm not doing a pun about oil. I'm also talking about the fact that they are ostensibly an ally in a portion of the country where we don't have many allies. So we, we liked having them there. Is that uh, part of the reason why we just didn't pursue them that hard? Well, I think that uh, that it, it's complicated, and and in fact, the the U.S. Saudi relationship historically has been complicated. As you said, uh, we've cooperated with the Saudis over over almost seventy five years on a number of different issues related to regional security, related to the energy sector, and and our mutual interest in a stable energy uh, market. Uh, and uh, and uh, also, in all fairness, I think that that from a U.S. perspective, from a U.S. government perspective, there simply wasn't compelling evidence to suggest that indeed the Saudis uh, were uh, knowing 
uh, or knowingly involved or Saudi government agents, we, uh, agents were knowingly involved in the 9-11 attacks. And so uh, there was also a reluctance to pursue it on, on those grounds, too. So Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist uh, as well, who was uh, at the center of a, a huge debate between the U.S. and uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, seems to throw uh, a lot of uh, sort of salt in the wound uh, with this as well. I mean, where do you, with that in mind and everything you were just talking about, see this going? Well, it's, uh, again, and, and you're absolutely right, uh, uh, over these last number of years, the uh, the relationship has been stressed by uh, the Khashoggi murder, uh, and of course the assessment of the U.S. government of U.S. intelligence agencies that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman bore responsibility for ordering uh, that murder. Uh, also strained over the conflict in Yemen in a sense that uh, that the Saudis uh, were responsible for uh, for uh, many civilian deaths and, and casualties in in Yemen. Uh, and so there have been these uh, these issues in the relationship. Uh, but again, uh, I think that if you look at the current situation, uh, Joe Biden just met with Mohammed bin Salman in, in New Delhi a couple of days ago. Uh, and uh, there are uh, intense discussions going on between the U.S. and the Saudis uh, with Israel as well about the possibility of Saudi Arabia normalizing its relationship. Uh, and so, again, I, you know, there has been this kind of schizophrenia uh, in the U.S.-Saudi relationship that goes back for many years, and we're seeing it uh, still today. Uh, very quickly, as we're running out of time, uh, who needs the other more? Uh, who's got the leverage in our relationship? Do we need them more than they need us or vice versa? I would I would say, in all fairness, that it's uh, that it's a balanced relationship. We need each other. And that's what's kept us together for all of these years. Uh, th- there is uh, there is no upper hand in this relationship. All right. Gary Feierstein uh, with the Middle East Institute. Uh, Thanks for talking about a lot of people still feel that uh, Saudi Arabia should be held more responsible for what happened 22 years ago today. Later in the show, uh, get this. If your boss refuses to promote you, it could be because he or she is afraid to lose you. It Mm. does sound counterintuitive. It sounds strange. I know. But uh, we're going to try to explain. From now on, every boss is going to use that as an excuse. I'm not promoting you because I don't want to lose, lose you. you. Yeah. Right now, though, food allergies seem to be on the rise, especially in kids. The Washington Post crunched the numbers from a CDC survey. They found that food allergies doubled in kids from 2000 to 2018. Professor Christopher Warren has been analyzing this. He's with Northwestern University's Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research. Thanks for joining us. Pleased to be with you. So, Professor, what's going on here? Well, that's a very, very good question. Uh, a loaded um, question, too, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Unfortunately, that I, I'd wish I could point to one thing that we think is uh, explaining this this whole rise in food allergy prevalence, but um, there, there are a few different things that have been kind of trends. Uh, in the ways that we feed ourselves, the ways that we organize our societies, the ways that we, you know, live in our houses, all that, that that just differ so much from, you know, the situation that our species uh, evolved in for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, beginning with the way we feed our our babies. You know, if you think to, you know, how when we were hunters and gatherers, you know, foraging for most of our food, occasionally taking down a buffalo or something, um, you know, by the age of 18 months, a baby would have 
been exposed to pretty much every type of food and, and like local pollen that they would likely encounter for the whole rest of their lives. You know, now that is so clearly not the case. You know, you can have Thai and Vietnamese and uh, Australian and pizza, you know, all in a given weekend and, and plausibly be, you know, introducing your immune system to new food proteins throughout your whole life, um, which you haven't exactly, uh, you know, learned to, to tolerate. So, so we think that's, that's one of the many uh, reasons why we see these increases is just our food environment is so different. All right. Well, we're talking evolution really over, what is it, 18 years from 2000 to 2018, uh, allergies doubling in kids over that time period. So, uh, I mean, is there a cause? Is there, is there, are there new foods being introduced? Uh, are kids being introduced to other foods that they don't normally uh, get introduced to? Uh, I mean, what's the root cause of all this? Yeah, well, well, so again, ret returning to kind of the way we feed ourselves, one very unfortunate thing happened in the year 2000 um, for that, that we think may have uh, been been a major contributor to some of this increase in childhood food allergy, and that is the decision of the American Academy of Pediatrics to release, uh, you know, a statement recommending that parents avoid feeding their babies uh, some of these commonly allergenic solids like peanut, like tree nut, like shellfish, things like that, um, sort of in a, in a bit of a misinterpretation of, of the data that was out there uh, up to that point, um, they just issued this blanket guidance that we should avoid uh, exposing kids during this pivotal, you know, developmental window, uh, when now there have been some data that have come out, um, you know, over the last decade, that have pretty conclusively shown that, that that guidance was was not correct. And in fact, it's important to feed your infants um, some of these commonly allergenic proteins, you know, namely peanut, egg, cow's milk, you know, as soon as they're developmentally ready to start solids, uh, because the earlier and more regularly you expose a child's uh, developing immune system to these, these foods, which are healthy and nutritious, um, you know, we've eaten for for a very long time as a species, the less likely those babies are to to develop allergies to those foods. Is it possible some of the increase, uh, while, as you point out, there is some increase of food allergies, could some of it be attributed to things are being reported as food allergies that weren't before, or perhaps uh, parents and doctors a little bit more cognizant of it now, so it gets reported more? Absolutely. I mean, and I think that's when you look at these data in particular that were summarized by the post, um, you know, they're, they're data from a survey that's basically just asking parents to report, you know, does your child have an allergy or other, you know, d digestive condition that, you know, we believe might be allergic in nature. And, and of course, um, and there's a lot of reasons to think why more of these, you know, cases of real allergies might have gone unreported before and are now increasingly likely to be reported. One of the huge reasons for that is, you know, up until very recently, if you were if you had an allergy to say shrimp and you were avoiding shrimp in your day-to-day -day life or avoiding peanuts in your day-to-day -day life doing okay, you know, what's the point of scheduling uh, an extra allergist visit and then going back every year so they can draw your blood and prick your arms and you know maybe even make you eat the food that you're allergic to <laughs> to confirm that you have this diagnosis if, if you think you're managing it well. Um, and one of the big things that's changed now is that there's finally some treatments that might uh, you know actually encourage more patients and parents of, of kids with allergic symptoms to go get that checked out because there's actually something that can be done besides just, just avoid. I only avoid things I don't like.
Professor Christopher Warren has been analyzing his uh, food allergies doubling in, in kids the last uh, 20 years or so. He's with Northwestern University Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Larry Perel in for Charles Feldman. And again, I... I'm having a hard time remembering what Charles Feldman looked like. Yeah, I know. It's like, you know, when someone is gone for so long that Adam you I? think, how long has he been gone for? Oh, he's only today. <laughs> I saw him Friday. Right. Uh, Drew Barrymore has announced on social media that her daytime talk show is coming back for the start of a new season. But that has made some Hollywood writers who are on strike a little upset. Yeah, to say the least, Barrymore does say the show is following the rules of the two Hollywood strikes, but that is not stopping the criticism, the backlash. Entertainment attorney Jonathan Handel is with us. He's been closely following the strikes. Jonathan, why'd she do this? Well, uh, you know, that's she says that uh, she sort of owes it to her crew and to the the audience to uh, to bring the show back. Um, she is complying with the SAG-AFTRA uh, rules that uh, she says that uh, they're her guests when they're actors will not discuss uh, projects that are, you know, the SAG-AFTRA is on strike against. But uh, the Writers Guild is picketing because it is tr- uh, her show is struck work. Uh, it is work that the Writers Guild is on strike against. And um, she has a staff of three writers. They are out on the pavement in front of the CBS Broadcast Center in New York. Hmm. Uh, is this going to burn some bridges for her? I mean, once the strike's resolved, uh, the writers are going to remember this, aren't they? Well, they are. And, um, you know, it's an open question as to what she's going to do. Uh, are those writers, do the writers want to go back? Will they go back? Does she want them back? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a nasty little situation, frankly. What does this do for the strike itself, for the WGA and its uh, fight for its writers and the strike uh, being resolved at some point? Well, it doesn't really uh, move the needle in that way, except to to highlight the uh, level of public support uh, and the, both the solidarity amongst the writers, which is uh, you know fairly great, although there's there's some pushback from showrunners about uh, some of what the Writers Guild is asking for. But do you, do but you think they, it make, do you think it makes it worse though? I mean, it's going to extend the strike even even longer. Well, I don't think one show, uh, you know, Drew's show is going to extend the strike. Uh, I think the strike is is going to last a long time. Frankly, it it if there isn't a deal, aren't deals on both guilds done in the next four weeks or so, which seems very unlikely. Uh, then we enter the holiday season and we're just really not looking at a deal at yeah, the but, earliest until uh, the next year. But could her show doing this, could that uh, could that kind of domino effect and other shows go, well, uh, Drew's doing it. We're going to do it, too. You know, there, there, there could be something of that sort with regard to these, uh, you know, uh, essentially unscripted type shows, so-called unscripted shows, the talk shows and things of that sort. But, um, you know, the, the, the big enchilada here is uh, streaming and network broadcasts and cable and, and movies and all that. And this is not going to have an effect on that. Uh, you know, CBS Media Ventures, which is essentially owned by Paramount, um, listed as the producer of the show. Are they in violation as a studio with the show uh, returning to air? And if so, what do you think the con- uh, consequences for them are? Well, they're not they're not literally in violation because, uh, you know, a uh, a struck employer can use non-union labor. Uh, but the optics, of course, are, are you know, aren't great uh, right now. The focus has been on 
uh, on on Drew Barrymore herself rather than on uh, CBS, but it does it doesn't redound to the network's benefit either. Now, for the actress, you know, going back to uh, her saying that she's abiding by the, everything that SAG-AFTRA is asking for, uh, so ostensibly no problem with the actors. There are some uh, uh, limited agreements with some smaller studios for actors to work on some movies that get the approval of the union. They are agreeing to abide by the things the union's asking for in their contract negotiations. But but in those cases, kind of a script is already done. So the writing's already done. They just need to go film it. So they've made these interim agreements to go do that. Uh, that doesn't really apply to uh, Drew Barrymore in uh, in that case. And I know that there are some actors who are saying that, no, that's still not fair for Drew to do that. And we don't like it. Well, that's right. Now, so Drew's show and shows of its of this sort, uh, reality type shows, talk shows, and also soap operas, the four that exist, are under a different sag after contract that doesn't expire till next year. And the union is not on strike with respect to that contract. Um, so she doesn't need an interim agreement. Uh, in this instance, because she's under a different contract. But you're right, the interim agreements, you know, they've, they've issued about four, close to 400 of them. There's another thousand or so in the in the backlog that they're processing. Uh, and those do relate to, to, you know, independent movies primarily. All right, entertainment attorney Jonathan Handel, one of our favorite people, because he always gives us the straight dope, as they used to say back in the day. Uh, Jonathan, thank you. Uh, he's been uh, following the strikes here, uh, kind of disheartening to hear that he says, you know, in four weeks, I don't think it's we're going to have a deal then. So it's, yeah, no, it this doesn't. is not over anytime soon. No, it doesn't. It uh, does not sound good. All right, we're going to try to figure this out. Uh, coming up, if you are a boss and you want to keep your best workers, uh, here's a tip. Don't promote them. Well, don't keep saying it. I know, but that's what they're saying. And, you know, usually businesses reward good workers uh, by giving them raises and promoting them. But the ADP Research Institute finds that can actually backfire on companies. Yeah, it turns out it says here that uh, promoting workers increases the chances that they'll leave. Here to explain is Joe Mull, author of Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Top Talent in the Age of Work. Joe, thanks for joining us. Larry, it's good to be oh, with you. There he is. Uh, so, Joe, before you explain, I'm going to try to get you to admit that you're completely wrong, uh, <laughs> that you've made a mistake, and you're going to admit it here and saying that, no, uh, the bosses, especially in radio, should promote their employees, especially the guys who are on the air right now, yeah. should always promote them as much and as often as possible. And then once we get that out of the way, we can continue. Yeah. What do you say? Will you do it? You get complete agreement with from me with everything that you've just said. I'm on board. All right, thanks. Now, explain, uh, if you would, why uh, promoting someone increases the chances that they will leave and find work elsewhere. Yeah, the headline here is really tantalizing, isn't it? But when you really look at what they were studying here, there's no surprise. So this was a study that focused really on first promotions. So you think about that individual contributor who moves up to be a frontline manager. And this was... Uh, predominantly looking at the first six months. And it does look like you find you find more of a chance of people leaving a management job in the first six months than there would have been if they had just stayed put. And if you think about what happens when you get your first promotion, it could be really overwhelming, right? You get more responsibility, you get more direct reports, you get new problems to solve. You might get a pay bump, but it may not be enough to justify all those new challenges. And so people get into those roles and they start to go, do I really want to do this? 
So it's not surprising that when you have some folks who are stepping into those leadership roles for the first time, they maybe decide they don't want to stay in them. All right. So let's get past the first six months. Uh, Then why are people leaving after that? Well, managers are people, too. And whether you're talking to someone who is in a leadership role or who's just an individual contributor, right now what's happening in the labor force is that people are gravitating toward jobs that prioritize quality of life factors. So for some people, that's an upgrade in pay. For some people, that's an upgrade in their commute or no longer having a commute. For some people, that's a better boss or a more flexible schedule or more fulfilling work. But across the board, what people are rejecting is overwork. They no longer want their jobs to to take over every corner of their lives. Is that is that kind of a, a side result of the pandemic? So the pandemic is a contributing factor, but burnout was at an all-time high in the U.S. workforce in 2019 before anybody ever heard of the coronavirus. And we were working longer hours and taking fewer vacation days as a developed nation more than every other country on Earth before the pandemic. But then COVID arrived and just made everything worse, right? It took an already exhausted workforce and just broke it. And so this is a trend that's been going on a little longer. It just accelerated once we started dealing with the coronavirus. All right. So what are the uh, keys for employers anyway uh, to making promotions matter for employees so they stay? Yeah, promotions still matter quite a lot, right? Because the perception of upward mobility is still a really important factor in being interested in in your work. We know that for most employees, they will be committed and they will stay if they're in what we call their ideal job doing meaningful work for a great boss. So ideal job is about my compensation, my workload, and some flexibility. When those things are right, my job fits into my life like a puzzle piece snapping into place. Meaningful work is about doing work that I believe matters, that aligns with my strengths, and on a team I enjoy being a part of. And then the great boss factor is about having my direct supervisor be someone who coaches me and advocates for me and trusts me. When an employee gets those core experiences, we see clearly that they stay and they try pretty hard. You know, you were talking about the uh, person who gets their first promotion, right, and discovers that with that first promotion comes a little bit of money, but not enough and a Mm. lot of extra work. And so I can imagine that someone who finds themselves in that position Uh, They can't just go, oh, I don't like this new job with new responsibilities. Let me go back to what I was doing before. Let me take that demotion. You can't really ask for a demotion, can you? You kind of have to leave by that point. Maybe. And we we do see it in organizations. If that employee has a good relationship with their with their employer, with the organization, maybe with their past direct supervisor, we do see people sometimes say, hey, this is a little bit beyond what I thought it was going to be. Are there opportunities for me to go back to what I was doing or maybe try my hand at something else? And right now, with the competition for workers being so fierce in so many industries, Organizations are open to that if it's about keeping talented people who still want to be a part of the organization. And real quick here, because we are running out of time, uh, you know, the hybrid situation for employers is a big deal, obviously uh, spurred on by the uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. But are the days of office perks gone? You know, the the uh, in uh, in office gyms, the uh, massages, the places to sleep and rest and all those kind of bringing your dog to work and uh, whatever. Are those history? <laughs> I don't think they are, especially now as more organizations try to coax workers back into the office. What they have to keep their eye on, though, are those quality of life factors, and they need to co-create that sort of hybrid work environment with their employees. If their employees tell them that gyms and you know coffee bars are important, they'll they'll be around to stay for a while too. Mm, uh, free stack machine. 
<laughs> Sounds like a good idea to yeah, me. Whatever happened to those. All right. Thank you so much. Joe Mole is author of a book called Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Top Talent in the New Age of Work. How many times have you been promoted, Larry? Uh, oh, man, I can uh, I could probably count them on one hand. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> one, and I'm, and I'm, I've been around a while, so. One know. hand mangled and you only have one finger. <laughs> right, exactly. right. There you go. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's it for KNX In-Depth today. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.